Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Sension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. This week, we're doing another in-studio recording. This one is going to be perhaps difficult, maybe even overly complicated, maybe to the point where I end up getting lost or losing myself. But that's not necessarily a bad thing since the point of art is to lose ourselves within it. Um, but we're going to tackle what many consider an important part of training and even the origin of training. Um, I personally do not. And hence, this topic was not covered in episode one of this podcast, but it is a matter of wrestling with the question, what is Aikido? I think a lot of us are motivated by external things such as politics or society or economic reasons to ask and be able to answer that question, but those are matters for either the entrepreneur or the political activist or the academic, which I try very hard not to be any of these things. Um, I did have a history as an academic, and one of the key reasons for leaving academia for me was it is a very limited path to truth and insight, and in the end is actually an obstacle to such things. So I'm going to take the liberty of, as not being an academic, of not necessarily citing sources here. Um, but nothing I say is uh, without a possibility of verification. Um, you just might have to dig a little bit, uh, as I have. Um, I think if you do, uh, you, you'll be able to reach similar conclusions. But in the end, and actually up front, is I, as, as not being an academic, I, I have no interest in defining the word Aikido. My only wrestling, or my only reason for wrestling with this question is it lends itself towards my own personal 
uh, wrestling with the art, my own losing of myself within the art. But outside of that, I really have no interest in the debates that are common to the internet or other kind of social media groups. That said, though, I do practice and employ a lot of reason in my own quest in wrestling with the art. And I think anybody, even those who are very interested in defining the word once and for all, uh, might find something useful. I know for my own deshi, it seems an important thing to be able to digest and understand, even if it is for the reasons of rejecting one's teacher's point of view on something so central, such as the word or the concept Aikido. But usually I, I reject this process because um, I see the sociological act of defining as a political act and as such it's always suspect to me in that it is more likely than not prioritizing a and a fed will to power over any kind of accurate insight to the point where deception uh, is actually employed either consciously or unconsciously so i really don't have a stake in what Aikido is and is not in the grand scheme of things. Um, my word, my definition is what we do at Ascension Center. And if I can behoove one on anything, it is to dig beyond the word and look at the motivations for attempting to define the word. Uh, I find that that'll be more helpful than actually coming up or adopting a definition for the word Aikido. I think you'll be further along in your own artistic embodiment if you look at the motivations behind the great efforts to define that word. When you look at those great efforts, I, I think you're going to see some things that are very common but also very superficial and uh, also very incapable of leading us to deeper understandings of the art or the embodiment of the art. For example, I think it is quite common to want to define the word and to adopt without question or reflexivity our logocentric tendencies. So we will look at the word Aikido and we go, oh, this is three kanji characters. So the first one, I, and the second one, Ki, and the third one, Do. And we try to look up those characters in a Japanese or a kanji dictionary and we come up with an understanding of the word that we claim to be accurate. So it's not uncommon to have someone say, uh, Aikido is the way, do, of uniting I uh, with breath, ki, or energy, ki. So the way of uniting with breath or energy. 
Other people who have a little bit more historical or cultural insight will understand that the word Ike is actually a compound word and it doesn't necessarily mean what the two characters, I and Key, individually mean. And so uh, they might define the art logocentrically as the way, Do, of Ike. But still, I think logocentrism has huge limitations, especially when we are trying to understand something not from our own culture and or our own time period. For example, if we take a word uh, in, in current modern English use, let's take the word awesome. Uh, the word kind of is synonymous with the colloquial cool. It's something good. But if you divide the word up, it the original meaning of awe uh, is something terrible, uh, something fear-causing. And so a more accurate and proper use of the word awesome, logocentrically, would be reserved for terrible, fear-generating things, such as an, an angel with a fire sword that appears before you and you can tell your world has just stopped and there's no going back. And in all likelihood, this might end with your ultimate destruction. The description of the vision of that angel would be awesome. But today we use that word to describe great waves or a great time we had with friends. It was awesome. And so it can be quite misleading because words have a history and their employment in the nomenclature Aikido is no different in that regard. And so one can be very led astray by simply looking at the kanji characters, looking up a modern dictionary and believing they have an understanding of what Aikido is. I think another example of this quite common today is uh, Mushin. The Mu character has a kind of negative or anti-connotation uh, to whatever character follows afterwards. So Shin or Kokoro is often translated as no mind. So you would just read it directly, no mind. And you'll see that one becomes open to criticisms that happened already hundreds of years ago. So, but, you know, EQ, for example, was very critical of a literal understanding of no mind because people in his era would uh, read it literally and think that it meant uh, to basically be an idiot. He would call them a jackass. Uh, where the point of Zen... Mushin was to act like an idiot or a jackass or to act like you have no concept of what's going on. Um, we see that today, too. Uh, no mind is for the lay person or the dabbler uh, is, you know, not using your mind, not using your intellect, um, not using 
you know, almost being Vulcan-like, where you have no emotions or anything like that. And in reality, Mushin is a specialized word, not unlike Aiki and not unlike Do or the way. Uh, these are specialized words where the, the person attempting to understand the word should first gain that esoteric or initiate, initiate level understanding of what Shin or Kokoro means and then to understand no mind as not that. Um, so I think it's very limited to look at the, at the words or the characters, the kanji of Aikido, and to hold the belief that one understands. These, these are specialized words. They have a culture to them that one needs to understand, gain an insight into, and that culture has a history to them. Uh, and that can be, uh, while equally necessary to a cultural understanding, that can be very tricky, especially in the case of Japanese history. Uh, in particular, uh, Japanese history, historiography, uh, for a very long time, only appears to share a lot of the post-Enlightenment concepts that we have in Western historiography. Um, I don't think it's a, it, it should be that surprising that different cultures have different understandings of history and therefore different understandings of how and why history is written. And one thing that is particular to Japanese historiography, perhaps more so than other cultures that uh, find their origins or their allegiance in the Enlightenment is the free use of the political act of origins. In post-Enlightenment historiography, uh, origins were something that was subject to some sort of objective standards and or some sort of scientific method but Japanese historiography uh, doesn't carry that same weight, generally speaking, and it is not uncommon for them to have a different motivation supporting the legitimacy, although not scientific legitimacy, but the overall legitimacy for establishing an origin. And that leads to a, a very... Uh, little-known thing is uh, one of the last things you can do or should do if you want to understand the history of something is to ask your average Japanese person what this means. Uh, this is because that person is more likely than not subject to those politically manufactured origins, uh, the historiography that supports them, and uh, they may, in the end, be oblivious to that act and therefore uh, have swallowed, from a post-Enlightenment point of view, hook, line, and sinker, the party line, so to speak. And they may not then offer the historical insight that you want. This is, this is something, too, uh, that Japanese historians have struggled with a great deal. So it's not like... It's all Japanese historians, but those that are wishing to write 
historiography uh, with scientific and or post-enlightenment ideals and virtues uh, have to struggle against this. And uh, some of their works have been pivotal in trying to move Japanese historiography forward. But nonetheless, your average person, your average Japanese citizen uh, really does not know their own history. So you might not get the, the uh, forward progress when you just go, hey, I'm going to ask a Japanese what Aikido means. They may end up doing the same exact thing. Oh, it means the way of union with energy. You're no further understanding what it means because you're no further in understanding the specialized terms at work in the word. Also, it should be noted that the other downside of logocentrism is that it gives a priori value to the word, and uh, it, in, in doing that, while not only denying the historical relevance of the passing of time or the relevance of a given culture, it also by by default then denies the peculiar history of the word Aikido uh, to the practice or the art that we all love. Uh, in particular, the founder, neither the founder nor an Aikido practitioner coined the phrase or the nomenclature or the word Aikido. And all current research points to the fact that uh, there was no motivation either on the part of O-sensei to, to feel that uh, his art was in need of a new name, particularly that one, and that the name actually came about for social reasons having nothing to do with insight or truth or artistic integrity. It was more a matter of... Um, how shall we say this, a a type of consumerism, a type of uh, political hegemony where uh, powers that be were trying to establish and utilize martial arts uh, for the purposes of generating a national identity uh, and the way of the way that it was thought this should be done was to have all martial arts in a particular centralized institution or particular martial arts in a centralized institution and part of that centralization was to have those arts end with the do ending so the word was just the word aikido its history Um, denotes that it was, you know, quite arbitrarily just the circumstances and the peculiarities of history that had uh, that ending brought into the art that O-sensei practiced and even the Aiki uh, phrase, whether it be thought of or understood as a compound or individual characters. 
So I don't know how much we want to put into any kind of logocentric understanding of the word Aikido, and I think logocentric understandings of any word when it comes to uh, actual life practice are, are very much lacking in any sort of validity or utility. I think it's also, I remember when I was practicing karate at that time and the internet, at a time when the internet was just starting up and there was something called news groups. Um, this, is some, this was something akin to, you know, uh, forums or chat groups, something like that. And there was a martial arts news group. And I remember people were trying to describe what Aikido was. And one person in there was adamant that, and this is quite common even to this day, that Aikido was a self-defense art that did not injure a person, the attacker, that it was nonviolent, and that it moved joints and body parts of the attacker in a natural way with the assumption of natural being non-injury causing. I thought that was peculiar, and I know we're kind of diverting a little bit here, but I thought that was peculiar because I was not an Aikido practitioner at that time, and I saw techniques like kotagaesh and shihonage, um, koshinage, these kind of techniques, and I thought, wow, it's really weird that uh, these techniques are found in nearly every other art, particularly the Japanese arts, and almost no other art claims that they move joints in natural ways, such as nikyo, for example, or, you know, uh, and or that they do not cause injury. You know, having a well, beneficial but perhaps not the best of past, uh, and then adding to that my experience with law enforcement, uh, I just knew then and know now more than ever that you do not move joints in non-injurious ways, that if you're doing kotagaesh or nikyo, uh, the joint doesn't go that way, And that is why you can, uh, whether you're operating at a low level, generate a pain deterrence, or at a higher level, use use that path to remove all articulation capacity out of the joint so that you can affect the center more directly from an extremity of the body. Uh, The point is that uh, this is not, the natural way in which the joint moves when your meaning or your understanding of natural means that, uh, you know, this is how I pick up the salt or this is how I pass the water, Uh, you know, we don't. Also, I thought it peculiar, like I said, in techniques like koshinage or diminage, shihonage, where someone is thrown to the ground, that that was believed somehow to be, you know, non-injury causing. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
uh, and and in all likelihood was precisely the reason why Nagewaza was brought into Japanese martial arts is the surety at which hitting someone with the planet uh, can debilitate someone, i.e. cause injury. I know in the state of California, the penal code will uh, understand when you're throwing someone, if you throw them, you're more likely to be uh, convicted. It, let's say you're the suspect, the perpetrator of the throwing. It's not a self-defense situation, but even if it is, you, you have to be careful because of this. But you know, law enforcement officers, in their understanding of battery, are taught that when you throw someone, you're more operating at a, a felony level and not at the misdemeanor level. So, you know, the state recognizes, as do other states, that throwing someone is a, a more likely to cause serious bodily injury and therefore is a higher level of crime moving from misdemeanor to felony. Uh, equally, too, you know, we have various types of uh, lateral, lateral vascular neck restraints uh, some lineages in Aikido more than others, but the state recognizes making someone unconscious as a higher degree of battery and operates at the felony level and not at the misdemeanor level. And so I just think that the that common understanding of Aikido, you know, being self-defense, being non-injury causing, uh, being natural manipulation of bodies and joints, uh, I just find that lacking. It's just not true. And it seems to be derived from people who just have not experienced that level of engagement in human versus human violence. I also think philosophically that it is very short-sighted to believe that a human being's will to power and or violent tendencies can be satisfied externally. For example, I don't think an art is nonviolent, particularly one that locks and throws and chokes out, but I don't think any kind of external thing can be nonviolent in and of itself. I think the virtue of nonviolence is a virtue and must be derived internally from the practitioner. I think if you give a person who has uh, a, a uh, immature spirit and therefore an unreconciled will to power, you can give them a pillow and they will be violent with that pillow. Even people who will take violence out, let's just say, let's describe or define violence here as the, the physical act of injuring someone. But let's say we've been cultured where we, be, we have become entirely ignorant in that process. Uh, if we still have that immature spirit and that unreconciled will to power, we will find a way to violence, uh, even if it is just with our words 
or with our uh, emotional attacks or psychological attacks on others. So I think it is also a waste of time to uh, just adopt without reflection a very common understanding of Aikido, which is this kind of nonviolent self-defense, natural manipulating art. Also equally, one other common way of defining the art, which at first glance seems doable, is to, is to uh, uh, attribute it to the founder. And I, th I would say right that and there you see uh, Japan's tendency to generate and utilize origins. Of course, uh, Japan is not alone in this regard, but um, again, I think you'll have way more uh, buy-in into that, into your average Aikido practitioner in Japan than you might have in other places. Uh, for example, uh, the the claims of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, its kind of Brazilian point of origin, uh, the Gracie point of origin, uh, you know, was quite bought hook, line, and sinker early on, but already we see people uh, poking holes in it. Its relationship, for example, to judo, to Japanese jiu-jitsu, and also to non-Gracie members uh, who who were paramount in developing the art uh, to the level it is. And that's not taking anything away uh, from the Gracies. It's just people are looking for a more accurate history. In Japan, not so much. I think the work of Stanley Prandon, for example, uh, has done a lot, for example, to, to have people looking towards Daito Ryu and even towards other Aikido, um, you know, huge figures in Aikido, such as Tohei. But generally, you have a whole bunch of Aikido, especially in Japan, who just don't know about Tohei and don't know anything about um, Iwama, for example, or... Um, even the formation and the role that Kishomaru actually played in the development of modern Aikido and in the myth of the founder. I think there's two other reasons why understanding Aikido as just the founder's art is a dubious take on things. Uh, th those two reasons are that uh, one simple one, is the founder in, in following his cultural exposure himself said that if you're just doing his Aikido, you're not doing Aikido. There's always been and there always will be, uh, especially in a Budo, that some sense that you as a practitioner are supposed to transcend the vessel that you use to understand the art. You know, you, you need to move beyond that. You need to move beyond the superficiality of the forms. 
and that to remain with the forms or even to remain with a doctrine type adoption of your teacher's forms is in some ways to fail your teacher and to not learn the art. And so when you have the founders' own statements repeating or echoing that kind of sentiment, it seems outright misplaced to to describe the art or to limit the art, which is the act of description, you know, to limit the art to what the founder was doing. Um, thirdly, the actual history of Aikido is just not as clear as as the the cult of the founder uh, pretends it to be. Um, there's been enough work now to show that you know the political act of origins and the cult of the founder and the historical narrative that goes with that is just not accurate. The idea that the founder was doing ex-martial art and then had an enlightenment experience of some kind, started doing Y-martial art, uh, is just not true. It's outright false. And I think uh, there's a couple things there. Uh, the so-called enlightenment experience actually happened way earlier than people of that point of view do believe happened or do say happened say when it happened, but also the Enlightenment experience was not at all uh, what they were claiming it to be. Um, and also, um, just anybody who's had Enlightenment experiences, the idea of an experience once and for all is, is really looked down upon in traditions where such experiences are commonplace. Uh, they're not this kind of apex moment that warps your reality once and for all. That is definitely a view held by somebody who is not practicing at a level where those kind of experiences happen. But aside from the type of experience O-sensei had and the date at which he had it, uh, we do know that there really wasn't necessarily uh, the evolution other than, you know, in the art where what was going before is so radically different than what came after. Uh, the evolution we see looks to be more the evolution that is quite usual for a person who is practicing something over and over. Uh, you can still see the origin arts in there. You can still see, uh, you know, that this stuff is something he's done from the time he started. But you do see those kind of individual personal advancements that just come over the decades of doing something. Um, and in that sense, there might not be this huge break Um this huge eruption in the landscape of history where, you know, there's this apex moment of genius that happens. It's just not there. So for the, you know, these reasons, um, the political act of 
generating an origin and a founder, um, the dubious history that goes with the the eruption of genius and the, and uh, the cult of the founder, and also you know what is the nature of an awakening experience, and also when did it happen? I mean, these are reasons to maybe look beyond pure lineage in terms of whether you understand Aikido or not. I think uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that, and it should be. It should be. I think one does themselves a disservice by adopting hook, line, and sinker, any type of doctrine, and falling for the cult of genius. I think the mature practitioner is more interested in the development of their own practice and of their own self and not going to be satisfied with what in essence is a kind of museum death. This is the, a phrase my, my mentor used. You know, what is a museum death? Well, it's if you take a, a, a prehistoric water jug and when it was used, you know, people would touch it and fill it with water and it had its place in the house and it had its person that used it. Uh, and so it had its own kind of experience and as a result, it had its own kind of reality. But now when we put that in a museum on the other side of a plexiglass box, we, in essence, have have separated it from its subjective reality and we have, in essence, killed it. We have given it a museum death. And so when the art of Aikido is nothing more than a doctrine associated with a cult of genius uh, and our job then or our goal is simply to repeat that, history, to reinforce that history, to reify that history, then our art is dead. It has suffered a kind of museum death. And I don't think, you know, I don't think that's a good thing. It seems like a lesser thing. So let's, let's move on from these more common but profoundly problematic ways of understanding the art and let's just start with some entry perspectives. I think Aikido historically and even currently and while I'll note that there are uh, pockets that do not understand the art this way today um, I would say that it, it it's a good place to start with understanding Aikido as a martial art. Well, then we have to ask, what is a martial art? And I would define this uh, very broadly. I would say that a martial art is a type of skill set development so in that sense, it's a kind of science, but it is 
a kind of science that is meant to be embodied, and in that sense, it is a kind of art. But as a science art, its main goal is to provide advantage. Advantage in terms of two things. One, a force advantage. And that should be understood in terms of an advantage in dealing or addressing higher degrees of force and an advantage in generating higher degrees of force um, for the purposes of gaining victory over another or others. This would then exclude uh, a so-called martial art that has no concern with advantage or victory over other or others um, as being Aikido in my point of view. And I think that's that's more complicated than one might think upon hearing it because there are ways of gaining advantage, particularly in East Asia cultural history. There are ways of gaining greater advantage and therefore ensuring more victory by not seeking advantage over another. But even then, the end is advantage and the application is aimed at victory. I think this would also exclude um, versions of Aikido where there is no mechanical advantage. There's no advantages in force reconciliation or force output. And I think we see that more and more. Um, and, you know, since we're here at the science slash art level, you know, the embodiment of this force advantage, force reconciliation, and advantage gaining slash victory. I think we should exclude those arts or those variations of Aikido, here in air quotes, that simply do not provide that. An art that requires me to be stronger or faster than my opponent, than the person I am contending with, uh, cannot be called a martial art. Certainly not in the Japanese sense of the word. So my understanding of Aikido is, is going to include that. But... Aikido is not just a martial art in that sense. And it is precisely because it is a Japanese martial art. And the Japanese, historically, um, for a great proportion of their history, their historical development, did look to China for things. And one thing in particular that has come to influence Japanese martial arts 
is the sense that martial arts, while they'll maintain that understanding I just gave, have this other understanding in that they work for or toward the improvement or even the perfection or at least the cultivation of the practitioner in the skill set of various virtues. So in that sense, it's a Budo. And I will loosely define Budo here now as as a technology of self. It is a means, a kind of science slash art, by which the practitioner improves themselves. It is some sort of science art on transformation, self-transformation. And that has existed in Japan for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Um, Even before the Doe nomenclature was utilized, uh, you saw that in China. Um, Even before the Chinese were playing with what would eventually become Budo in Japan, that is, the sense or the utilization, the sense that Buddhism, that Buddhist theory of self, and the utilization of Buddhist theory of self can include uh, what on the surface appears to be non-Buddhist practices to perfect the self or to transform the self or to cultivate within the self virtue. I also think uh, when you look at that history of Budo. Uh, more broadly than that, like that, that you'll see that even when the concern might be purely martial, there was still a sense that the art was a technology of self. Meaning, for example, uh, I might have a overhead cut and I might be able to perfect that cut to a certain degree under ideal conditions, but warriors of old realized, as warriors of new nowadays realize very quickly, that there's a whole other world between uh, the practice of technique and the application of technique within environments where one's personal extinction is at hand. So warriors of old saw a need to address, for example, what is a stress-caused degeneration of technique and the ability to reconcile this stress-caused degeneration is what warriors will call bravery or integrity or steadfastness or resilience or grit. And so warriors of old, as as warriors of new, have always been interested in developing training mechanisms whereby not only was the overhead cut learned, but the subjective 
platform for delivering that cut in or amidst combat was also being trained. So in in that sense, uh, you know, there was just a long history and has always been uh, that the martial arts require and in that requirement uh, they cultivate these kind of virtues. And so when Budo, you know, when, when Chinese Chan monks in their temples, and it, it might be a stretch to label them purely Chan, but when the Chinese monks in their temple were playing with calligraphy uh, and seeing it through uh, Buddhist ontology, uh, you know, it it had a harbor for it to land amongst warrior cultures because warriors had always had to be cultivating virtues within themselves just to be able to have the delivery system for the techniques they were training in. And so flat, fast forward centuries, multiple centuries, uh, you know, you have this, this sense, this deep underlying cultural sense in Japan Definitely by the time O-sensei was working uh, that the martial arts are meant to be self-cultivating tools. So let's go into that a little bit because these Chinese monks were playing with things like calligraphy and tea and other types of aristocratic cultural artistic expressions. And why and how can the martial arts be used in a way akin to uh, other forms of Buddhist practice? And I'm going to say Let's summarize what what this uh, this uh, Buddhist practice is in in, in essence. So, uh, in essence, um, what a practitioner is trying to do is to develop skill in self detachment uh, in order to abide with the truth and the utility of shunyata or emptiness or the delusion of self or the delusion of independent existence. So you're trying to develop a skill in self-detachment. Um, and I think this was a parallel or this, this generated a parallel. That, that goal generated a parallel for the warrior, and still does to this day. The, even uh, in modern law enforcement, we don't use uh, Buddhist terminology, but anybody that is familiar in Buddhist terminology does understand uh, modern tactical training and, and the problem, problematizing of self-attachment or the inability to make decisions or uh, the performance degradation of stress, which is brought about only by self-attachment. I mean, you would understand and see the parallels between Buddhist uh, 
um, practice. And, and in fact, you, you do have it uh, with the concept of mindfulness that is, you know, infiltrating modern law enforcement training is people are being shown meditative techniques, breathing techniques, uh, worldviews, utilizations uh, in order to stop them from having the performance degradation of self-attachment through various types of things aimed at what they're calling mindfulness, which is outright a Buddhist concept. But I think historically, uh, and that the warrior has always done this, and I think that Budo, unlike tea or unlike calligraphy or unlike Zazen, uh, works or generates the problem of self-attachment, particularly through fear. And this is not to say that fear is not present in the other arts. It, it is, but there is another level of fear uh, when a sword is coming down at your head versus when you've on the cushion for three days and you realize the, the uh, meaninglessness of your flesh. I, it, it might, structurally, it might be the same, but in terms of empirical observation no totally different and i think this is why you know in the old tales on achieving this mindset you had zen practitioners who were lay people and who could go into a duel and demonstrate the same lack of self-attachment, self-detachment, and the swordsman or the warrior seeing that would come to respect it. Uh, I think two things are there. Obviously, the warrior respecting it is seeing the same problem being reconciled in the monk. But I also, when you see it as an ideal in your folktale, is you see that it's off. It's not a virtue shared by all the other monks. This person has reached a whole other level of fear reconciliation. So Budo uses fear because fear generates self-attachment and in the generation, the generation of self-attachment, the skill of self-detachment can be cultivated. So I think that is very important uh, when we're looking at, you know, what, what kind of martial art what does, it, what does it mean in Japanese cultural history for something to be a martial art? I think it means that it's going to have this self-development sense to it. And in that self-development sense, it's going to utilize fear to generate self-attachment, to develop skill in self-detachment, and to see through the delusion of self. If you, if you go past that, um, you come right back to virtue because all virtue is about uh, the absence of self-attachment. In fact, socially, religiously, even when something is without virtue, it is because it is egocentric. And this... This skill in self-detachment, 
this capacity to not go egocentric, even amidst the toxic environment of human versus human violence, it not only was a self-development or an act of self-development, it also was the very needed platform for delivering combat effectiveness. And I think Aikido falls firmly within that framework. So this would make problem any kind of Aikido. And again, this is just my opinion, and it's really just why does my Aikido look like it looks. You know, for me, it would make a problem any kind of Aikido that does not generate fear. The training does not generate fear. The The training does not uphold Self-detachment in the tendency towards self-attachment in the face of fear. I would also devalue any Aikido that's not working toward this cultivation of virtue, this perfection of self, this self-transformation towards an improved self. And that does not hold these understandings of force advantage, force reconciliation, and victory over other, over another, or over others. I think those understandings are are paramount. If we go a little bit deeper, we go past. You know, Aikido is a martial art, Aikido is Japanese, Aikido is Budo. And we, we dig a little bit more. Let's go into... Uh, let's, let's go into uh, what Aikido is, me- methodologically speaking. How, how does it achieve this advantage in force output and force reconciliation. For example, how, how does it achieve this victory over other and over others and even over the self? I think again, if you look historically, you're going to you're going to have to define this very broadly and you're going to have to go way past the founder just like we did with Budo and martial arts. Aikido will have very important roots in China, in Chinese cultural history. And this is a very, very complex history even even the utilization of the word China is problematic from certain points of view, depending on when you're talking about and where you're talking about. Um, but since I'm not an academic, I'm, I'm going to just use these and note here that they are problematic terms. Equally so is words like Taoism and Buddhism. These are highly problematic words, historically speaking. But 
let us just say that there was a kind of East Asian worldview that has over time lent itself towards concepts or or institutions like Taoism or Buddhism. And in particular, uh, these would be the concepts of yin and yang, various concepts in cosmology uh, and various ontological concepts. Uh, and like I said, some of those are going to be yin and yang. And this kind of pan-Chinese, pan-East Asian understanding is that it is better, again, kind of advantage, advantage. it's more advantageous to uh, utilize a, a perfect fitting or a harmony or a matching of yin and yang than to not. Another concept in this kind of pan-Chinese, East Asian cultural landscape is what I call uh, concentric truth. So something in this cultural history is considered more true if it is capable of being applied in more places. So, for example, you can think of Russian doll sets. So you open the largest doll and there's another exact doll in it. And you open that one and there's one more in it and that one, one more in it. And it goes on and on. And it is the same doll, just of different size and a different location. And so this kind of East Asian cultural history will... Uh, consider something more verified if it is able to be uh, travel up and down the microcosmic, macrocosmic spectrum. And therefore, when you take a concept like yin and yang, you have to understand it. It has to be understandable uh, along that spectrum from the microcosmic to the macrocosmic. And something that cannot is going to be considered untrue or immature or superficial. So when you understand uh, yin and yang and you understand that it is considered better or more advantageous or more true to have a harmonization of yin and yang, that harmonization has to take place, for example, at all levels of the combative engagement, meaning uh, yin and yang must be harmonized at the contact point of the arms, let's say at the wrist grab, but also between the individual, the the uke's body and the naga's body, but also um, so to the external aspect of Naga's body, to the internal aspect of Naga's body, to the greater will of heaven and the greater will of earth, uh, and, and it goes on and on and on. The, the concept would hold that the 
microcosmic, macrocosmic spectrum is infinite in nature. And so the practitioner who can capitalize or, or utilize or manifest more of that spectrum, of that infinite spectrum, than the more true that practitioner is or the more that practitioner has achieved the art. So when you look at Aikido then, um, that's exactly what you're going to see. But again, we don't see that that much. Uh, but it was always a rare thing. You know, it, it was more common to either not understand the spectrum at all, or it was more common to only understand small portions of that spectrum. And, and it's been like that from the beginning of humans trying to work on this. And so it should not be surprising, really, that there are variations of Aikido that have no internal component at all, that have no cosmological component at all, uh, that should be expected. But by this cultural truth, they are lesser forms, if not, in comparison, outright incorrect forms. But Aikido being a part of that history and that history being a part of East Asia for centuries before Osensei came around, um, Osensei understood, just like we all do when we have a cultural system we were born into, uh, he understood the art through that spectrum. That was his worldview. And it was a worldview shared amongst all the East Asian martial arts of Japan. You just, you couldn't think without it. You didn't have to be trained in it. It just was the world. The world that you live. And it is very much a part of, of Aikido. And it has led to all kinds of uh on the one hand weird understandings but on another hand uh rare understandings so if we go back for example to the martial art component of aikido you could take our definition of advantage right if if my advantage if my martial art, if my Aikido has no internal component and is subject to levers and fulcrums, external level, levers and fulcrums, for example, um, then my force advantage and my force reconciliation advantage is going to be lower or lesser than if I did have an internal component. Also, and here's the strange part, uh, the techniques, the waza, are going to be understood not necessarily as tactical architectures following an if-then model. And the if-then model is the, the current uh, commercial self-defense model. 
uh, it's geared towards consumerism. So if then means if the guy comes in like this, then you do that. Uh, it has infiltrated nearly every component of martial arts training uh, in and outside of the military, in and outside law enforcement, and obviously in the commercial market. But culturally, historically, it's not part of Japanese martial arts, and it's not part of Aikido, even though people do it now. It's, it's a modern take on things. But in the traditional or the historical or this kind of cultural worldview, the Waza are actually trying to develop this full utilization of this microcosmic, macrocosmic spectrum. Meaning they're not just trying to do an arm bar when someone grabs your wrist. They're trying to develop a utilization of the yin aspect to the yang aspect. So there is an internal geometry, so to speak, that supplements the external geometry so that it is either a external fulcrum and lever that is reinforced by an internal geometry and or it's not even an external fulcrum and lever but is the mechanism by which the internal geometry is utilized. So one of the goals of the Waza then are to generate those internal aspects and this is actually something that we can, we can address here. If we look at Aikido pedagogically in terms of this cultural history, um, we, we would today come to define this as a Confucian pedagogy. And a, a Confucian pedagogy does not follow the modern if-then paradigm. It follows the as-if paradigm. And what is that? Well, the as if is the moves are designed in a particular way where through mentoring and the insight and application of the mentor, uh, mentor's tutelage, the practitioner through repetition and exposure, repetition and exposure, will put themselves in the form, the ritual, so to speak, and move as if they already embody this spectrum. This, this capacity to harmonize yin and yang. Infinitely. And Confucian theory is about, you know, we might look at it and go, what? How, how is that going to happen? Well, it's Confucian theory, like all cultural historical pedagogies, are more practical based. They're not theoretically based. So they're interested in the, the outcome and not the theory behind it. So if you look, for example, of if we look at ourselves and we see how we may have, as children, observed our parents quite unconsciously, 
And as we get older, maybe we're in our 30s now and uh, we're married and our spouse and and ourselves are home for dinner or Christmas or something like that. And uh, your spouse mentions, wow, you move your head just like your dad. Or you laugh just like your dad or, uh, you know, you walk just like your dad or you comment just like your dad, these kind of things. Um, Our parents never purposefully sat us down and go, look, you're going to tilt your head like this at this kind of moment. Uh, And yet, just through observation and repeated observation, uh, the human being will go ahead and be imprinted. And so... Confucian theory is going to, like all pan-Chinese, East Asian theory, it's, it's about observation. So when they looked at uh, the natural world and they looked to it to see how they should be, they saw that most learning actually takes place unconsciously and through exposure and observation. And so if you really wanted someone to learn something at the level of being, if you go back to our, our, our earliest definition of martial arts, it is a science, but it is an art in that it is a science that's meant to operate at the level of being. Um, so here we have that concern. If you want something to get to that deep level of being, then you need to utilize the unconscious uh, and you need to, to uh, cultivate it through repetition and exposure. And so the goal or, or the pedagogy is as if. So we're going to put you in the ritual, you're going to move uh, in the ritual, and you're going to do that over and over and over. Uh, until it becomes your your nature. Uh, that said, the role of the mentor is also very important because that is also from this cultural uh, pedagogy. So uh, we're going to use the Confucian uh, pedagogy of exposure and repetition and utilize the subconscious. But the mentor is vital because... Uh, you know, to borrow the modern phrase, it's, it's not that practice makes perfect, it's that practice makes permanent. So the mentor is there to, uh, to, to develop your practice in such a way that you are more likely to uh, adopt the ideal embodiment and not a corrupted form of it. And very much like the way parents raise their children. And I think Aikido, you know, is no different. If you look at what the, how the founder trained, if you looked at how he trained people, uh, you're going to see that. And I think uh, it has not only that kind of lineage, you know, legitimacy to it, but it and this cultural legitimacy to it, but it has its practical legitimacy as well. Because when we don't have this, when we don't have these things in place, it's not just a matter of breaking with tradition. We've actually broke the system. If if our training becomes if then, uh, there's just no way of embodying. The art, and I think that is why, for example, 
you see uh, a lack of training in Jiwaza and Andori, uh, or you see those two training environments being hugely reduced where they're anything but a live training environment. I also think it's why you see an uplifting and prioritization of form over something like Takamusu Aiki when the founder upheld Takamusu Aiki as the apex of the art, the, the achievement one is after. We see a, a, a form becoming a kind of fetish for modern Aikido. But this is relatively new and is totally a break with the cultural history that gave birth to Aikido. I think also, uh, you know, at this point, you're you'd probably listening and go, "Well, there's nothing unique about Aikido," and you know, from one point of view, exactly, exactly. Um, we are, as Osensei was, a product of our culture and of our history. Um, and so, yes, it is probably misleading and problematic to believe in the cult of genius, but culture, culture and history are not as unified as we tend to think they are. That always has to be understood. I do think there are things particular to Aikido that... Sensei did through those things make his art unique um, but had to do he, he did it in a way that he did not reject uh, or think without this cultural history of what is a martial art what is a budo um, what is the pedagogy that we're using um, you know he had to make sense in both things the history of his times and the time of his history. And what was unique about the time of Osensei's history really, uh, and, and I have to say here, very much like the internal aspects of Aikido are nearly gone wherever you look at the art. Uh, this latter part that makes Aikido unique is even more so gone, and that is his his religiosity. Again, I think it would be a mistake to go, oh, he did Shinto, so I go do Shinto. It's, it's too simplistic. It's too simplistic. Shinto is, is heavily a problematic word, and... It has its own revisionist history that one has to battle through. But that point of view is made further complex by the fact that O-sensei's education and culture it cannot really be separated from that Chinese cultural history, from Buddhist history, um, 
nor from what was going on at the time that he was developing his own worldview amidst that history. In particular, um, there, there was, there is, or there was a strong theosophical leaning in Osensei's religiosity. And in that sense, it goes beyond what one might find uh, currently in Shinto or one might even find historically in Shinto. You know, like, like the martial arts had already a shelf for Budo to sit upon in the sense that it was also about self-development and the need for virtues for combat effectiveness and therefore could be tweaked towards a technology of self outright. Um, Shinto did have a shelf for ideas that we now call theosophical. It's just that in the inclusion of theosophy, uh, O-sensei expanded upon that shelf. So we all know, it's commonly known, that his religion in the end was a motokyo, and the founders of that religion, less well known, were exposing themselves to theosophy and to the, the movements of theosophy. Um, the attempt there was to uh, legitimate their own position, but in all likelihood, there was a very heartfelt um, motivation towards the ideas of theosophy. Uh, what are those ideas? In particular, uh, it was a movement that started after and through the World Wars, and we have to remember that uh, those wars were a shock to the public consciousness. And the division that people knew were there, but did not foresee how devastating those kind of divisions could be, especially when, when compounded by um, the utility of science and modern manufacturing in terms of weapons, atomic bombs, machine guns, jet fighters, etc., communication devices. Um, they, there was a, an effort on many people to try to find the commonality of humankind. And quite strangely today, in today's political landscape, uh, they saw that all religious traditions had in them a kind of mystical component. They had within them an effort and an, an upholding of the loss of self. So whether it be Buddhism, Gnosticism, Christianity, um, Islam, there was always a mystical component where the practitioner was to work toward developing 
a reconciliation of egocentricity. And by that, see all humankind as brothers and sisters. It, it, it is a very common sense way. I will not destroy another person if I don't see them as other. And Omoto Kyo participated in this. And that is why it is unique among Shinto traditions, uh, why scholars will call it a new religion. And it is also what is unique about O-sensei's cosmology. At the heart of his understanding was this mysticism. And at the heart of theosophy was this kind of universal deity or divine and this is not in the sense of the bearded genie in the in the sky this is what is the creation aspect of all things in the universe not only including the land and the sea and the sky and the sun, but emotions such as love and will and intention and gravity. Whatever that entity is that is beyond all of those things, each culture, each history has given it a different name, but beyond the different names, there is a commonality. And that theosophical position thoroughly infiltrated Omotokyo and through Omotokyo thoroughly infiltrated Osensei. Now, that said, this is not this is not a break from that cultural history because in as theosophy did with Taoism and Buddhism, for example, they had the same, Taoism and Buddhism had the same idea already. So the Tao is beyond all that which can be named, but it is the source of all things. For example. So there was already a shelf, as I say, for, this, for these theosophical ideas in Japanese Budo and in the Aikido of Osensei or in the martial art of Osensei. And I think when we hear that the Hombu, the young practitioners at Hombu, that would get these lectures from O-sensei and say they could not understand them. I think what you're seeing there is a few things. One, you're seeing a paradigm shift in the culture where Japan was, um, like the West, um, moving away from the ideas of theosophy. 
um, there was a notion that science and reason would uh, better address the tendency for us to kill each other. And so people wanted to participate in, in this new paradigm. The new paradigm was connected to the economic systems, whereas the old paradigm of mysticism was disconnected from the economic, economic systems. And so there really was no cultural capital, no symbolic capital, no material capital, and therefore no motivation whatsoever to participate in this old cultural worldview. And so Osensei is talking to people that just are disassociated from the very cultural history that he was part of. So they did not understand what he was talking about. Secondly, that worldview has always been what is considered to be esoteric or for the initiate only. Just if you go back to our, our uh, pan-Chinese idea of concentric truth, uh, the one who could capitalize more on that spectrum from microcosmic to macrocosmic, the, you know, those, the fuller obtaining of that spectrum, the more esoteric that understanding is. Again, that is not necessarily beyond our understanding. It's just a simple fact that the masses, by default, by, by being masses, cannot gain the understanding. And so this kind of deeper truth or this deeper insight has always been for the person who takes the time and makes the sacrifice and makes the commitment to find the deeper truths. They are the initiate. So O-sensei is talking about esoteric truths, truths meant for the initiate, to people who are not initiates. So they're not going to understand it. I also think when you look at the way O-sensei talked, and this will, this is, there's no way I can prove this, um, but for somebody who has studied uh, cultural history for a while, religions for a while, um, there are stages of it. Uh, there are stages. One of the earliest stages is when a person is exposed to the various names, words, and concepts and their earlier presentations on it is merely a repetition of words and phrases uh, and some very cursory understanding of concepts. Um, they're more like uh, trivia. Uh, you know, I used to go to these talks and you could tell someone really didn't know what they were talking about very deeply because they would just repeat the terminology or the very cursory understanding of the terminology. Uh, they weren't able to think with the terminology. They weren't able to um, theorize with the terminology. And they therefore could not 
give deeper understandings, could not answer more difficult questions, and the audience would would in essence leave on the one hand perplexed or thoroughly satisfied with just nomenclature. And when you look at O Sensei's lectures, they seem to be operating in that level. And it could very well be that uh, he himself was not yet initiate enough for the teachings of theosophy um, and, and or Omotokyo. They come off that way. But either way, I think this was quite unique. This is a paradigm shift in Osensei, uh, but it's a passive one in that the world moves beyond. The world shifted, not, not Osensei. The world shifted. And in that sense, his, his view is unique to ours. And as the internal aspects of the art are very rarely seen amongst all those saying to be practicing Aikido, and equally as the martial aspects of the art are rarely seen to be practiced today, uh, more so, more so than those two things, this mysticism, this uh, theosophy, this take on this universal divine um, is even more rare. And, and the sad part is that due to that paradigm shift, that passive paradigm shift, it's probably the thing that makes Aikido the most unique. Uh, meaning you will have other arts that are subject to that same pan-Chinese cultural history. Um, they will have yin and yang harmonization. They will have concentric truths. They will have the microcosmic, macrocosmic spectrum. They will utilize uh, as if pedagogies. They will utilize the mentoring technology. Uh, they will be aimed towards the cultivation of virtue and operate as a technology of self. And they will do all that like Aikido. What they will not do like Aikido is this theosophical reaching. They will, they will not say uh, or expect outright this kind of mystical self-dissolving and divine unification. In, in fact, a lot of Aikido are openly outright mystical, outright anti-mystical. And of course, they don't understand the word, and so mystical is redefined to, to stand for everything beyond scientific reason. And this is not the actual understanding of the word, nor is it the way the founder understood the word. But 
when you take O-sensei's theosophical worldview, you add into the waza themselves uh, a kind of rite of purification, a kind of rite of self-emptying, so that they become a kind of practice of divine possession or divine communion. And that is something that is quite rare. Something that has always been quite rare. In closing, I would encourage practitioners of the art to look past the obvious, to see the superficial as an act of reduction and to understand reduction as folly. I think if you do that, you will place yourself at the doorway of wisdom and insight. And the world and the art can only be made better for you having done so. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.